0: dance before the Lord. Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Shalom and welcome to Parashat Shmini, 8th, the address is Va'ikra, Leviticus, chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 47. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament publications incorporated unless otherwise noted. The written commentary for today was... Um, was updated on April the 12th of 2007. That's right, it's a very recent commentary. I've made lots of changes to it. In fact, that is the primary reason why this commentary is reaching you so late into the week. Shabbat will be upon us tomorrow. And there were lots of changes that I kept um, making to the commentary until eventually uh, I felt Hashem said, Ariel, stop, just publish that thing. So, this is the latest version until I s- decide to change it some more. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah this morning. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Welcome to Parashat Shmini. Now, while our portion this week deals with the actual beginning of the priestly service in Chapter Nine. And the first tragic misuse of the priestly position, that is to say, the death of Aharon's sons, Nadav and Avihu, or Nadab and Abihu, um, in chapter 10, the portion's most prominent feature is the laws of what we call kashrut, that is, laws governing um, foods that are to be eaten, um, foods that are prohibited or things that are defined as food, things that are not defined as food. Um, and uh, the, all the um, items related to those foodstuffs, etc. Uh, these are all outlined in chapter 11 and this becomes the most prominent feature of the Torah portion. Um, accordingly, it is there that I want to focus our study today. Now, it is my design or my intent or my wish that Hashem's holy word would penetrate deep into the very fiber, pun intended, of your being as you seek to discover the truth afresh. Uh, the written commentary is 20 pages long. I'm envisioning at least three sections of 30 minutes each, so about an hour and a half worth of audio listening. Probably part A, part B, and part C, as normal. Okay. This first section is in, is entitled Introduction. Um, an oft misunderstood subject today is the dietary laws of the Torah. And right away I have to say that the reason it's often misunderstood is because of the differences of interpretation that exist between the Judaic communities, that would include the Messianic ones, as well uh, when compared to the um, standard Christian communities, read here as non-Judaic. In other words, it's synagogue versus church all over again. The synagogue says the dietary laws are in force today, the church says the dietary laws have been lifted. the ch- The synagogue says that the dietary laws are um, applicable to Jews and Jews only. The um, dietary or uh, the church says that the dietary laws not only are are not applicable to the Gentiles, but they never were. So around and round we go with this discussion on whether or not um, what is defined as food in the Torah it carries over into what is defined as food in the Apostolic Scriptures and so that's why I say oft misunderstood what exactly is the Bible talking about when we hear the term kosher the term kosher implies what is fit for consumption and what is unfit for consumption in this article I want to examine the biblical definitions of this concept its use during the time period of both the Tanakh and the Bre'ich that is to say the New Covenant, Apostolic Scriptures, New Testament, et al., as well as its practical application for us today. In other words, I'm going to attempt to define whether or not um, the laws governing uh, what is fit for consumption and what is unfit for consumption apply to Jewish people today and or Christians today. The subject will take us into an explanation of hermeneutics, Halacha, and finally a Biblical understanding of what is kosher. Some of the texts that we will examine in this study include Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verses 8 through 13. Um, I really should have done a study of of Deuteronomy chapter 15 as well. Uh, I'm sorry, let me see. I say 15, I want to say, uh, let me just double check here um I'm sorry chapter 14 I really should have included chapter 14 because it's the minor list um the minor companion list of Leviticus chapter 11 but I decided not to this time um most much of the information is repeated uh or I should say is found in Leviticus 11 therefore the Deuteronomy 8 uh, Deuteronomy 14 list is not crucial to my study um but we do look at Mark chapter 7 verse 1 through 23 Acts chapter 10 Romans chapter 14, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and other uh, minor passages that deal with food uh, topics. In reality, we are going to attempt to define from the Torah what is food, what is not food, and why. Before we can embark on a biblical understanding of this subject, of food, we need to establish some basic hermeneutic principles. Now, hermeneutics, you may ask, uh, is the science of interpretation, especially the branch of theology, that deals with the principles of scriptural interpretation, properly understood. Hermeneutic principles govern propical, uh, proper biblical interpretation. These principles, these built-in principles, I might add, because they're not necessarily listed um, in a linear fashion in the Torah. Rather, they are um, they are gleaned from a, a a careful reading of the text as well as, really, a glossary reading of the text. In in other words, everyone should be able to uh, glean um, biblical hermeneutics from reading the Bible. Why many of us don't, I'm not sure. But these principles establish the guidelines that that are employed by laymen as well as scholars. Everyone has a right to discover the biblical rules governing hermeneutics. Why is it so important to establish these principles, you may ask? Well, if we did not practice these established guidelines, then the text itself would be left to the subjectivity of each individual interpreter, and serious scriptural injury would be the result. That's right. We don't often think about the Bible as being being um, able to be injured, but that's exactly what happens when we misuse what the text tells us. To be sure, not everyone has the proper intentions Uh, that God intended them to have when they read the text there are many a bad person out there reading the Bible wishing to distort the text and and this at the same time um do damage to the interpretation of the text as well as damage to any subsequent um implementation of the text in other words some people are out to hurt people and it's a shame that they use the Bible in their effort to promote their evil agendas um, we don't even need to name such unmentionables that have existed down through the timeline. But the but the but point is, is that if we are to allow the Bible to speak for itself and teach us the way God intended it to teach us, then we must avail ourselves of the built-in principles of hermeneutics found in the text, um, placed there by God himself as well. As well, um, we must um, allow ourselves to be teachable when it comes to this particular topic. To be sure, I'm not a subject matter expert, but I am no novice either. Because well-meaning interpreters of Bibles also come from a variety of cultural, educational, and spiritual backgrounds, we can be sure that each one is going to approach any given text with a certain amount of personal bias. That's right. That's why we have a plethora of biblical translations. No one translation is better, per se, than any other translation. The goal of the translator is to simply convey the message of the original text into a receptor language the original language gets translated into a receptor language and in that um, in that effort the best translation naturally becomes the translation that you can read so there's really no one best translation rather there are a variety of translations because we come from a variety of nationalities and languages so we need a variety of, of translations so that we can um, engage the text. So the translator inserts his own personal bias into his translation and that's not necessarily a bad thing. What we need to do is understand that even though the translator inserts his bias we must also um, seek to understand the the, the historical, social, religious Uh, linguistic context of any given passage so that we can understand where the translator may have hit the mark in his translation and where a translator perhaps may have missed the mark in his translation. So that's our job. Such established principles are therefore needed and should be followed. One of the most important of these principles involves the preservation of biblical continuity. That's one of the principles of hermeneutics built into the text: biblical continuity. Give you give you a very easy to understand example. If God were to say in one passage that I am God and I do not change, and then in another passage say, "Well, I'm God and I've decided to change my mind regarding who I um, will have, uh, who I will love, and who I won't, or uh, how I will deal with mankind." If God's character were to be so random. As to suggest um, his um, uh, how? What am I describing? As to su- as to su- suggest mood swings, or um, uh, uh, injustice—God forbid—or um, something to that effect then what we would have is incontinuity as regards to God's description of himself in the text. In other words, we would have God contradicting himself uh, throughout the text, and consequently we would have to form the conclusion that God cannot be trusted, neither can his word be trusted. The same thing is true when it comes to the rules governing uh, biblical interpretation and its continuity. The text establishes principles that govern how we approach both God and the commandments that are contained within his text within his words and in that um in those guidelines we are left to uh, gather to ourselves as humans that God's revelation of himself is a continual consistent revelation which would include of course his commandments meaning God should not give commandments to one group of people that he would contradict to another group of people or with another group of people I use the word should there even if we think that's what the text is saying it is not a safe biblical practice to make such an assumption alright if the Torah establishes a truth in one passage let's for instance say that the truth that Jesus is the Messiah as presented in the Gospels then the same truth is recognized as valid in all subsequent passages even if it appears to be contradicting itself Jesus is the messiah to everyone at every time in every time period okay he must be the messiah to every man in order for him to be the messiah at all we cannot allow Jesus to be the messiah to the christians in the first century and then allow for muhammad to come along um muhammad muhammad to come along in the 7th century or so to claim himself or proclaim himself as Messiah thereby um, superseding Jesus' claim as Messiah it doesn't work the biblical uh, text doesn't allow for such uh, an assumption as the complete unified word of God we will do well to recognize that the scripture cannot contradict itself in any given set of passages the reason is is because the scriptures are all authored by the same person and that person is the spirit of of God. So, well, actually, more specifically, if it can be shown that the Torah, the foundational part of the Old Testament, I might say, establishes the guidelines for the definition of food, then it stands to reason, therefore, that these same guidelines govern the New Testament's definition of food as well. Would you agree that that is a safe assumption on my part? I think you do. And with that assumption, I think we can embark on a better study of the um, New Pest Testament passages that deal with the term food. So, let's get going. The word kosher itself stems from the Hebrew root word kasher, which means, quote, to be straight or right, by implication it means to be acceptable, uh, end quote. That's taken from Brown, Driver, and Briggs' uh, Jessenius lexicon to the word kosher or cashier. Today in modern Hebrew this word is naturally associated with the dietary requirements specifically as it re- is related to food again cashier or cash root actually spills over um, into the topic of foodstuffs, utensils, pots um, food preparation and and things like that but for now we're just going to talk about um, food as that which is ingested to kasher something is to render it kosher uh, but what does the Torah mean to be or what does the Torah mean by the term acceptable or non acceptable in regards to food? Let's establish some foundational truths before we examine what is kosher. Now um, for this section in my commentary, I'd like to use a dialogue that establishes the basis of separation, that is holiness as expressed through set apartness and let's turn first to the book of exodus here hashem explains to moshe in exodus chapter 19 verses 3 through 6 quote here's what you are to say to the household of israel i'm sorry the household of yaakov to tell the people of israel you've seen what i did to the egyptians and how i carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself now if you will pay careful attention to what i say and keep my covenant then you will be my own treasure from among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you'll be a kingdom of Koanim, of priests for me a nation set apart quote. the idea of being set apart for the purpose of serving the one true living god was to be a central concept in the lives and purposes of the budding nation of Israel to be sure in this manner Hashem would showcase his uniqueness to the surrounding nations through the unique lifestyle of his chosen people. Isn't that a novel concept? Because Israel was um, demonstrated as being unique God would then be demonstrated as being unique. Israel was not chosen for her size her power or her spiritual aptitude. To be sure she was usually lacking in one or more of these areas. Um, No, she was chosen to be a fishbowl nation placed in a key geographical location of the Near Eastern uh, uh, people groups and land groups um, for the entire world to examine God knew this in advance when he put Israel where he placed her geographically on the map from this position Hashem would unfold his wonderful plan of redemption and blessing to the entire earth you see right there there's a hermeneutic principle at, at play Israel Uh, carries within its um, dietary restrictions and ultimately within its lifestyle the kernel of the gospel. And that is a hermeneutic principle that is applied and um, understood throughout the entire world that salvation is of the Jews. With this principle established, we are now ready, I should say, to move on to one of the primary passages in the Torah proper, that is to say, the first five books, which addresses this subject of set apart. Okay, are you ready? Uh, let's see, it's 20 minutes into the commentary. Uh, let's first talk about what is food, part one. This next section is entitled What is Food, part one. In Leviticus chapter 11, the entire chapter is given over to explaining what types of animals are acceptable for consumption and which ones were forbidden to consume as food. In other words, the Bible begins to define what is food and what is not food. In this chapter, the language used, as is typical of most of the subjects dealt with in Leviticus, is clean and unclean. I'll tell you what the Hebrew words are in a moment. These concepts, however, don't really translate too well into the English vernacular in fact, they don't translate too well into any other receptor language without compromising some of the rich meaning conveyed in the original Hebrew. For instance, in Leviticus 11:4 through 8 speaking of some of the earth-dwelling animals, we read these words, quote, But you are not to eat those that only chew the cud or only have a separate hoof. For example, the camel, the coney, and the hare are unclean for you, because they chew the cud but don't have a separate hoof. While the pig is unclean for you, because although it has a separate and completely divided hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. You are not to eat meat from these or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Quote. Now, in every single instance, the original Hebrew word translated as unclean above, where I have it underlined in my commentary there, is the Hebrew word Tameh. Um, as already expressed, this word is rather difficult to render precisely into a receptor language. It really is not Is a concept that the word is trying to express. And in that concept, um, many multiple words could be utilized to try and convey the concept. And so, by singling out the word "tame" and, and interpreting as the word unclean, we're not really capturing the full concept that the Hebrew is trying to convey. I'm not even sure that I could properly even um, convey it to you here in this podcast. But... Let's give it a stab, okay? The concept implied here can mean a wide variety of ideas ranging from ritually unclean to physically unclean to spiritually unclean to ha- to even ethically unclean, all right? And that's according to the Brown, Driver, and Briggs definition that I just utilized earlier. Um, in fact, related to Tame is the synonym Shukkets. And shakets is a word normally associated with birds, water dwellers, and swarming creatures, i.e. fish, insects, etc. And it's usually rendered disgusting, detestable, or abominable. But it's defined by the BDB as detestable thing or idle, an unclean thing, an abomination, a detestation, end quote. Um, Again, which meaning is in view here? Ritual, unclean, detestable? Uh, physically unclean, detestable? Which one? And keeping to the rules of biblical interpretation, let's make a safe assumption that the physical is likely and firstly in question here, um, since the test explains that merely coming in contact with the carcass renders a person tame. To be sure, among the rabbinical attempts at interpreting Scripture, we have four basic um, ways at interpreting Scripture we have the Peshat, which is the plain and the literal. We have the remez, which is the hint. We have the drash, or midrash, which is the search. And then we have the sud, which is the hidden, or the esoteric. Among these four types of biblical approach, physical uncleanness would fall into the category of the bashat, Okay, I would have to agree, then, that intrinsic and ritual uncleanness is additionally and clearly being taught in Leviticus also, along with the physical what's more to describe an object and label it in terms of Tamei Sheketz is to compare such an object to the Holy Sanctum or to the community at large what I mean is the object is unclean unto or in relation to the Holy Sanctum and or unclean or in relation to your fellow Israelite does that make sense to you now so far okay on what um, biblically to do if a person contracts uh, uncleanness. You need to see the section at the end of my commentary entitled Penalties Remedies. Um, But at this point in our study, let us go back and establish the context of the entire passage. The immediate context of the passages that we're reading about in Leviticus 11 suggests that these instructions were given to Moshe and his priestly brother Aharon to be expressly conveyed to the people of Israel as they interacted with a holy God at the designated meeting places that Hashem commanded, viz. the tabernacle and later the temple. That's the context of the instructions. This is our immediate context and therefore serves to establish the basis of our definition of applicability. You see where I'm going with this? Many people say, well, here's what the text says, now here's what it means to me. Failing to first establish what the text says to the recipients of the text back then. That's improper use of hermeneutic principles if we don't establish the historical context first before we try to make any applicability for today surely these laws and rulings are meant for the people to whom they are addressed as they would find themselves wishing to approach hashem the question however is are they meant for the rest of the nations as well back then and would these same gracious instructions find validity and application for the surrounding godless people groups that israel would find herself dwelling among also in other words let me ask the question different this way Could a non-Israelite back then approach Hashem without fear of contaminating his holy sanctum? It's a good question, don't you think? Or, um, well, we're really trying to answer the question, uh, does one law apply for both the native-born Israelite as well as the stranger who associates himself with Israel? We'll answer these questions shortly, but first let's return to our text in Leviticus. Quote, for I am Adonai your God therefore consecrate yourselves and be holy for I am holy and do not defile yourselves with any kind of swarming creature that moves along the ground for I am Adonai who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God therefore you are to be holy because I am holy the um, verse is lifted from uh, chapter 11 verses 44 through 45 now sorry about that dropped my paper here okay now um, as we can see here uh, once again we find this signature as it were of Hashem's deliverance where it says quote for I am Adonai who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God see that phrase there this term or this phrase is the exact same concept used in the verse at the onset of our study. Uh, Among Israel, Hashem was to be remembered, if you remember. (laughs) Remembered, if you remember. You get it there? Hear the pun? Alright. As the God who delivered you, God is our deliverer. We do not deliver ourselves. And as such, your lifestyle, Israel, was to reflect his absolute uniqueness among the other gods, worshipped in the world then and now you see how that's working so far God is not only the God of Israel but ultimately God is the God of all the nations this covenant language that I'm describing here is reserved for those in covenant agreement with Hashem this answers one of the questions posed above as to whether or not a non-israelite could approach God without fear of contaminating his holy sanctum the answer should be obvious by now Why would a non-Israelite wish to approach a God with whom he was not in covenant to begin with? I don't see Hashem relating to people during this period outside of covenant, do you? In other words, um, if God were to allow non-Israelites to come into the community of Israel and join Israel and and come into covenant with Israel's God, well then God would necessarily um, prescribe the same laws to those individuals joining Israel. That's the whole point. God is not saying to just any old people group, hey, keep your worship of other gods, but at the same time, if you want to approach me, here's what you have to do. No, God first establishes relationship through covenant, and in that establishment, God rules out the allowance of other so-called gods once the person um, enters into genuine relationship with himself, So, Again, I don't see Hashem relating to anyone during this period outside of covenant. I should say, I don't see Him relating to anyone today outside of covenant either. Reaching out to non-covenant members? You bet. Allowing just any old desert wanderer to approach the Holy Sanctum? Unconcerned with what was written in the Torah? I don't think so. How is this concept of ritual exclusivity understood with regards to the way that it is recognized covenant people were to eat? Well, again, let's let the Torah speak for itself chapter 11 verse 46 through 47 quote such then is the law concerning animals flying creatures all living creatures that move about in the water and all creatures that swarm on the ground its purpose listen up its purpose is to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten end quote now here in the pages of this text we find no in no uncertain terms the definition of what is food and what is not food why we misunderstand this I don't know we also found the uh, we also find as I I I should note, the um, counterpart to our peculiar word Tame here in the passage above if you see the underlined word there in the written commentary clean it is the Hebrew word Tahor which is translated as clean so now we have Tame and Tahor. Going back to our hermeneutic principle of context, uh, context, these concepts of Tameh and Tahor as outlined in Leviticus chapter 11 fall right in the middle of a series of chapters dealing with subjects uh, the likes of consecration of Aharon and the sons as high priest in chapter 8, the details concerning sin offerings and sacrifices in chapter 9, the consequences of failing to establish a difference between holy and uh, the holy and the unholy in chapter 10, and the beginnings of the rulings concerning unclean flesh, known as leprosy, in chapter 12. That's where we are in chapter 11 here, going all the way back to chapter 8 and going forward to chapter 12. That's where we're at, okay? That's the larger context of what these terms, Taman and tahor, are trying to convey. It is within this context that Hashem explains what is kosher and what is not kosher? And consequently, what is food and what is not food? Are you catching it? Is God the God of the Gentiles? The question that I asked earlier. Surely he is. Is he not? That's what Paul says explicitly in Romans 3, and 30, I believe. Um, is God the God of the Gentiles? Surely he is. It stands to reason, therefore, that the paradigm was being set right here in the Tanakh that there be one law for both the native-born as well as the stranger in matters pertaining to covenant privileges one standard was to be established and agreed upon for all Israel a standard she would be held accountable for to eventually share with the surrounding nation groups as well I want you to look up Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 1 through 14 so Since all men share the same Creator, we can, therefore, conclude that these distinctions of holy and unholy are applicable for the surrounding nations as well as for Israel. um, I might add, as these surrounding nations enter into covenant with God and join Israel. Our God is exclusive. Our God is consistent. And with that, I'll close down Part A of my commentary to Parashat Shmini. Stay tuned for Part B, where we will start to examine the topics of um, what is food and what is not food. But first, we'll have to hurdle the, um, the uh, question of tradition. Tradition. Specifically within Judaism, the oral tradition. So stay tuned.